it's only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time. That's a quote from the, the, the theologian Carl F.H. Henry. In relation to the gospel, this message about Jesus Christ and what he's come to do, Dr. Henry commented that this gospel is only good news if it gets to the people who really need to hear it in time. But for people and nations that never hear, that that message never reaches, and who die without hearing it, they remain captive in bondage. I mean, we see a more recent example of that over the last couple hundred years in our own country. Just yesterday, we celebrated a new federal holiday where this same principle played out. The Emancipation Proclamation guaranteed and granted freedom from slavery to all enslaved African Americans. But that good news was only good news for those who heard it. It still was two more years before the residents of Galveston, Texas, heard that they too could have freedom. For those two intervening years, they remained trapped in bondage, in darkness. It's only good news if you hear about it. That's what we find this morning in our passage in Micah. The people of Judah find themselves captive in darkness, needing to hear a word of hope that will be good news in the midst of sorrow. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You've come with worries and sorrows, feeling under attack, and you need some good news from God. Well, praise the Lord that he gives it. You don't find this good news on the television or in the newspaper. The best news you can find is right here in God's Word. And we look into it this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Micah chapter 5? Micah chapter 5. We'll read the entire chapter this morning. Micah says this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall go forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at his entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, 
like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the, among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So here's what I think is the main point of these 15 verses in Micah chapter 5. The main point of our passage this morning. Though times seem bleak, God will raise up a ruler to rescue his people from ruin. Though times seem bleak, God will raise up a ruler to rescue his people from ruin. As we walk through this passage, passage, I think we'll see four scenes, as it were, four kind of different uh, scenarios or instances that we see in this passage. One, we see a present problem. We see that in verse one. Number two, we see a promised ruler. We see that in verses two through six. Three, we see a priestly remnant. We see that in verses seven through nine. And number four, a purified people. We see that in verses 10 through 15. So number one, a present problem. Number two, a promised ruler. Number three, a priestly remnant. And number four, a purified people. Point number one, a present problem. We open up chapter five, finding ourselves victims to chapter and verse divisions. In other words, the beginning of a new chapter does not necessarily signal the beginning of a new thought. Amen. That's not the case here. Chapter 5, verse 1, is just the continuing of the thought or the line of thought that we saw towards the end of chapter 4. A few weeks ago, we saw that the people of Judah are in present distress. We noted that by looking at the present tense time markers that Micah uses. Yes, he has prophecies of what will happen later, but he doesn't paper over what's currently the case. So if you, if you lift your eyes up a little bit to, to chapter 4. Verse 9, Micah says, now, why do you cry aloud? There's pain, agony present among the people. Oh, it's the same case in chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. Chapter 4, verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you. And then chapter 5, verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of Zion. Why? 
a siege is laid against us. Now, 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 now. This kind of fourfold repetition in these few verses are Micah's way of making the point that present times right now are hard. And again, the particular hardship, the problem that Judah is facing is that they are under siege, under attack. This is not some metaphor that Micah's using to, to describe, you know, hard times. It's a historical fact. It's a real life danger. The year is 701 BC. And the Assyrian army under its fierce ruler, Sennacherib, has surrounded the city of Jerusalem, cutting off its supplies with plans to take it over and to take its people and its king captive. We read about it in the historical account of 2 Chronicles chapter 32. There in 2 Chronicles 32 verses 9 and 10, we read the following. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Well, this is the same siege that Micah is referring to. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, Micah told us that he prophesied during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Micah is around, is present during this time of distress. I mean, just, just notice in verse 1, he says, siege is laid among us. He's with the people in this intense trial. The great Sennacherib and the Assyrian forces are just outside the gate, ready to pounce on the people of Judah. It's frightening because their track record is impressive. They seemingly cannot be stopped. And later in 2 Chronicles 32, Sennacherib boasts, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? They'd gone through the region and crushed all their enemies and gobbled up all their territory. They'd even swept through the land and 20 years earlier captured the northern kingdom of Israel and taken them into exile. And here they were now, seemingly about to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. The call in verse 1 for Judah to muster their little troops must have seemed meaningless, a wasted effort compared to the great and powerful army of the Assyrians. They couldn't look to their comparatively small military for help. And neither could they look to Hezekiah, their king, for help. I mean, look at the, the latter half of, half of verse 1. The problem is not only that the Assyrians have laid siege, and not only that they have small troops compared to Assyria's large army, the problem is also that they have a weak king compared to Sennacherib, Assyria's king. I mean, with a rod, literally a scepter, an emblem of royal power, the Assyrians have struck the judge or ruler of Israel on the cheek. It's not literal, but metaphorical. 
To be struck on the cheek is a symbol of shame, of defeat. We've got a similar expression in our day of, of shame or insult that's not literal. We tell someone that was a slap in the face. And here the Assyrians and their ruler with his scepter have smacked Israel and their ruler Hezekiah in the face. Have shamed him. Hezekiah is holed up in the city with his people, hiding from the inevitable invasion of the Assyrians. It's a time of distress. A time the Lord told his people would come if they turned away from him. If they followed after him and obeyed him, he promised them peace and protection from all their enemies. Rest in the land and a rich relationship with him. But if they turned to follow other gods... To live their own way, God would curse them and give them over to their enemies. And this situation here is just Judah tasting the bitter fruits of their sin. Friends, sin always leads you here to this place. Under siege. In bondage. The people of Israel thought they'd find freedom away from God's rule only to find themselves captive and cowering before the Assyrians. It's the same with us. Sin never deposits the promises it offers. Amen. You find there's no freedom in it, but rather yourself captive to it. Sin lays a siege around you and won't let you out to find true freedom. You find yourself self-isolated from God and from others. You find yourself locked into sinful patterns and habits with seemingly no way to escape. Sin doesn't bring delight, but despair. It doesn't provide lasting pleasure, but rather deep problems and pain. I mean, think about it in your own life. Can you honestly say that living in sin has made your life better? Has gossiping about others made them look bad? Or made you feel worse, weighed down by a guilty conscience afterwards? Has drunkenness or drug usage, addiction to pornography or social media or video games really brought an escape to the problems of life? Or just created another problem that you can't escape? Kids that sneaking behind your parents' back brought blessings, peace, or just trapped you into a web of constant lies that you can't untangle from? All sin just presses you further and further into captivity and into darkness. And all sin cuts you off from God who hates sin and will judge sinners. Amen. And part of your judgment, which if you don't repent of will be far worse later, is allowing you to stay in it. Entrapped by sin. Captive to it. God is giving you what you wanted. A life apart from him. And it sucks. It's dark. And it's depressing. And it's dangerous. That's the situation Judah finds himself in. Their sin has led them to the brink of defeat. The nations they wanted to live like are not their friends, but their foes. About to force their way into Jerusalem and forcefully carry them away as captives. And Judah's little run of troops... And their little ruler seemingly can do nothing about it. But God promises to raise up a ruler 
who will rescue his people. Point number two, God promises a ruler. The scene and mood shifts from darkness to light, from verse one to verse two. From present horror to future hope. And it's signified by that little word, that small conjunction at the beginning of verse two. But. Now, we've noted before how throughout the Bible that word moves moods. It changes perspectives. And we see it at the end of Isaiah chapter eight and into Isaiah chapter nine. They will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. We see the change that word, but brings in our everyday lives too, don't we? How in an instance, with those three little letters, your heart can swing from sorrow to joy. You get a phone call. Your spouse on the other end shaking and their voice trembling. We were just in a terrible car accident, but we're all okay. You get called into the doctor's office to go over scan results. We found a large tumor, but it's benign and highly treatable. Your boss informs you because of COVID, we're having to make some massive job cuts, but we consider your work invaluable and your job is safe. Three letters can totally transform things. We see that here. Leaving verse one, the people of Judah in Jerusalem are in distress. As they look around, the Assyrians are threatening on the outside. And within, their army and their leader are of no help. But God lifts their eyes off the capital city, where one would think to find strength and protection, and on to another city where God would bring strength and protection from what looked weak. We read in verse two, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. Bethlehem Ephrathah? How can any help come from there? That might have been the initial thought. I mean, if the place where the king and the army resided, Jerusalem couldn't provide protection, then certainly little old Bethlehem Ephrathah couldn't. You see the intentionality behind Micah highlighting how little and insignificant the place was. Not even named among the clans of Judah. That is, when Joshua brought the people into the land and separated all the territories, Bethlehem Ephrathah wasn't even mentioned. Too small to even talk about. You don't even get a name in the Bible. They weren't even listed in the, the, the cities that we saw in chapter 1, where all these cities in Judah were going to be destroyed. You don't even see Bethlehem Ephrathah there, not even with judgment. What could possibly come out of Bethlehem Ephrathah 
to help the people in such a troublesome situation. God says, a ruler who will come forth for me on my behalf and not serving his own purposes or even primarily the people's needs, but serving and acting in my interest for my glory. His coming forth is not new, though, but from of old, from ancient days. He got a beginning that you can't find in no book. But there is another ancient historical root of it. This is not a new person. He's been talked about, testified about, promised long before. I think the language Micah specifically uses here lets us know who he's talking about. I mean, he mentions Bethlehem Ephrathah being the place where this ruler would come from. Though lowly and little, this place is where a ruler was raised up before. Israel's greatest ruler, David. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. And what was it that God instructed his prophet Samuel just before this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1? He told him, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Bethlehemite. That's some words for you. For I have provided for myself a king among the sons. That ruler, that king was King David, under whose hand Israel conquered all their enemies and flourished as a nation. But David was dead. Yet before he died, God promised him that he would raise up one of his descendants, one of his sons to rule forever. But here Israel is, under the weakened ruler Hezekiah, and under the threat of being run out of their land and ruled by the Assyrian king. Where is this seed of David? Where is this coming ruler, this coming king? Well, he's coming in God's timing. Verse 3 says, God will give his people up to the bitterness of their sin to the hostility from foreign enemies, to captivity and exile even, until an appointed time when a child is born. Or as Isaiah 9 puts it, a son is given. When she who is in labor, Micah says, has given birth to a ruler who will, verse 4 says, stand and shepherd his flock in the Lord's strength and in the Lord's majesty. He will be God's man, filled with God's power and crowned with God's prestige. Under his rule, his brothers will return to God as the true people of Israel who devote themselves to God. Under the rule of this one, people will dwell secure, Micah says, because he shall reign over them and be great even to the ends of the earth. He, verse 5 tells us, will be the very peace they longed for and needed. Fast forward, or maybe slow forward, 700 long years of waiting, of wailing, of withering. The people of Israel will be reduced to almost nothing. 
they'd be spared from a serious siege here in 701 BC, but just over a century later would fall to the Babylonians and be taken into exile. And though they'd return from exile back to their land, to, to Judah, to Jerusalem, it was but a fraction of its former glory. And they had no king. In fact, the people would find themselves in a situation similar to the one they're in here. They'd be in their land, but captive to another people, ruled by the Romans. That's the sad situation Israel finds itself in as the New Testament opens. A time of distress, of darkness, of hopelessness. It seems as if God has reneged on his promise to send a ruler to rescue them, to bring them peace. But God comes through and fulfills what he foretold. As you open up the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And after that, it shifts to a virgin woman who will give birth to a son. Sound familiar? Micah 5.3, she who is in labor will give birth. Matthew chapter 2 opens, telling us that Jesus was that son born in Bethlehem of Judah. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And wise men, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 tells us, came from the east to Jerusalem to the puppet king the Romans had put up, Herod. And they ask, where is he who has been born the true king of the Jews? Herod had no clue what they were talking about because he hadn't read his Bible. And so he called all the chief priests and the scribes, the religious experts, and asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. Their answer, not here in Jerusalem, but in little old Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written, they said, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means now least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They cite the prophecy here in Micah 5 as the authoritative ground to locate not just where some temporary king had been born, but the very Messiah, the one God had long ago prophesied about who would come and rescue his people to save his people, not simply from one or two foreign enemies, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans even, but from a far fiercer enemy. Matthew 1:21 says this Messiah had come to save his people from their sins. Amen. He was the one who would totally bring the peace that Micah prophesied about. It's why in, in Luke's account of Jesus' birth, he quotes the angel's reaction. Glory to God in the highest. And with this Messiah's birth on earth, peace Amen. among all those with whom he's pleased. Friends, what God promises, he will fulfill. Amen. God always keeps his word. Friends, that's good news for us, isn't it? 
You know, our daddies and mamas don't always keep their words, even with the best of intentions. But this God is 100% accurate. What he says, he will do. Amen. Good for us, because the weeping of tonight is met with the sure joy of the morning. God meets us where we are, but he does not leave us there, which is astounding because he could. He should. I mean, Judah rebelled against God, and so have we. And God doesn't owe us a solution, doesn't owe us any semblance of hope. He'd be totally justified to leave us in and plunge us deeper into despair. But he speaks to us. And he reminds us of his promises. Hey, Judah, don't look outside the city at the Assyrian army and be terrified. Don't look inside the city at the weakened king and be discouraged. Look back at my promise to my servant David to send the king to rescue. And look forward to me one day fulfilling that promise and have hope. He's calling us to do the same. In our time of distress and discouragement, of lowliness, to look back at God's promises and his faithfulness to fulfill them, and to have hope in the midst of hardship, triumph in the midst of tragedy, trust that there's salvation in the midst of what feels like bondage. We can look back at the actual fulfillment of this prophecy. When God sent his king, Jesus Christ, to rescue us, he came from heaven where he was exalted as God's very son. But he came to earth in lowliness, born in insignificant Bethlehem, living as a common man and dying the lowliest of all, a criminal's death of crucifixion. But that was for us. Whereas the king of Judah here in Micah, was symbolically struck on the cheek to show his inability to help the people against their enemy, the true king of Judah made himself weak and was actually struck in order to help his people. The end of the book of Matthew tells us Jesus was repeatedly struck on the head and spit upon as he made his way to the cross where he would be ultimately struck, not by man, but by God, where he would be stricken and afflicted, be dealt the death blow that we deserve for our sins so that we might have life, so that we might find freedom from sin and peace with God. But God promised that his king would rule forever. And so the grave could not hold Jesus. After three days, he came bursting up from the grave, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for our sins and their penalty, death. Jesus ascended into heaven, where he now sits enthroned as what he always is and what God prophesied him to be, his king, reigning for all time and commanding all of us now to turn from our sins and submit totally to his rule. Friends, have you done that? Have you done that? No, that is not a recommendation, but a requirement. That is, if you want to live, if you want to be rescued from God's wrath. 
Judah deserved to be judged for their iniquities by the Assyrians and could only be saved if they trusted in God's coming ruler. And we deserve to be judged for our iniquities and can only be saved if we trust in God's ruler who came and died for us. If you've never done that, trust in him and give your life to him this morning. If you've already done that, then keep trusting in him. No matter how bleak things seem now, this passage shows us that God is not a liar. He will do what he promised. He sent his son, his Messiah, to rescue his people as he said he would. Will he not also do the other things he's promised? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Will he not keep his promise to never leave us or forsake us? Will he not keep his promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age? Will he not keep his promise to strengthen us and uphold us by his mighty right hand? Will he not keep his promise to give us rest from our weariness and to give us a peace that passes all kinds of understanding? Friends, use passages like this to pray the promises of God back to him. And that's how you build up your faith, not by conjuring up some false confidence by, about what you think God will do in this or that situation, but by remembering what God has said he will do in his word and seeing his past faithfulness and trusting that he will be faithful again. God has sent his ruler to rescue us and to reign over us. Under him, we have peace and protection and purpose. We have a job to do. Which leads to point number three, a priestly remnant. Point number three, a priestly remnant. Now, when I say priestly, don't think of a Roman Catholic man with a collar and a confessional. And don't even think of high priests in Jerusalem slaughtering lambs in the temple. Think of the broader scope of priestly duties to represent God to people, to reflect his glory and extend his rule. I mean, think of God when God first constituted Israel as a nation. He established the fact that he would be their king, their ruler, and they would be under him. He told them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And specifically, he told them how they would function in relation to him. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, he said, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. Yes, God was king, but as king, he ruled over a kingdom of people whom collectively he charged to serve the priestly function of representing him and carrying out his name to be a blessing to others. It's an old thing, one that God established with the first people he ruled over, Adam and Eve, commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to spread God's rule abroad. They rebelled in that task, however, spreading sin instead. You might remember God calling Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, telling him that he would make of him a great nation, and bless him so that he would be a blessing to the nations. And that in him, in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Yeah. 
Abraham's descendants. The children of Israel again were tasked at Mount Sinai with that role to bless nations, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to show the watching world what it was to live like God, to live like his special people, to live under him, to exalt him, to live properly under him and live properly with one another. But instead of blessing the nations, the people of Israel wanted to become the nations, to live like them. So God raised up his son, his true son, not Israel, but Jesus, his ruler, to perfectly represent him, to perfectly showcase God to the nations so that they might be blessed. He used his life to spread God's reign on earth. And when this king, Jesus, is exalted and established, all those under his reign will with him serve in this role to make God's ways known, to be a blessing to other nations. Now, where do I get that? I, I, I think we see that here in, in verse 7. When the Messiah comes and delivers his people from their enemies, the remnant of those he saves will bring a blessing to other nations. And notice verse 7 says the remnant will be in the midst of many peoples. They will live among the nations, scattered abroad throughout all times. No longer will God's people live in one land, but all, over all lands. No longer will they be told not to intermingle, but will be among the people, representing their king, Jesus, in word and in deed. And their influence will be beneficial, will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Symbols that the Bible uses to, to represent blessing or favor, the giving of life. I think of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. There the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God's people will act like God's kingdom people and invite others to see their lives and hear their messages so that they too can experience the true peace and the true joy and the true blessing of living under their king, under their Messiah. So as you know, that's our task as a church. We are the remnants of Jacob, whom God has saved. Not ethnic Jacob or Israel, but true Israel. Defined not by race, but faith in God's king and God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. We live under him to spread his kingdom reign throughout all the world. I mean, in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writing to churches of Gentile believers spread out among the, the regions of the world. He calls them a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And for what purpose? To proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God rescued us from ruin in his son, Jesus Christ. He brought us out of darkness and into his light. Not simply to live in it, but to testify about it. To proclaim to those who are still in the dark that there's light to be had in Christ. There's life to be had in Christ. 
God saved us to send us out so that others might be saved. Saints, that's why we as a church don't consider Sunday mornings as the end all be all of our spiritual experience. Yes, we need to gather. Yes, we love to gather, but then we scatter into our homes and into our neighborhoods and into our office, office places and, and out to the farther reaches of the world to bear witness to our king. So we share the gospel. We spark up spiritual conversations. We live in such a way that people wonder, why do you have hope? What's the reason for it? We answer simply, boldly, joyfully. It's because of Jesus. Because of what he's done for me. And what he'll do for you too. If you turn and believe in him. What a glorious task. To spread the kingdom of Christ to others. And to welcome them into it so that they might have life. But there's a flip side. While among some we are like the dew and showers among the grass, verse 8 tells us that to others we are like a fierce lion that treads down people and tears them into pieces. For some, we and our message about our king will be rejected. But sadly, ultimately that's to their harm and not to ours will only lead to their condemnation and destruction because Christ's kingdom will be established and nothing and no one can thwart it. Amen. Those who attempt to will find themselves torn apart, devoured, not in this life per se, but for sure in the life to come. Amen. Totally ruined for their rejection of this witness about Christ. This twofold witness of, of God's kingdom people bringing either blessing or cursing based on people's reaction or response, reminds us of, of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So one, a fragrance from death to death. But to others, a fragrance from life to life. Whatever the outcome of those to whom we minister, our outcome, if we remain faithful to our king, is secure. And look at verse 9. God promises his people that your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and your enemies shall be cut off. And God is able to make such a bold guarantee of victory because he will grant his people total and complete victory over their enemies. Which leads us to point number four, a purified people. Point number four, a purified people. Now, I said earlier that I think the, the main point of this passage is that when times are bleak, God will raise up a ruler to rescue his people from ruin. As we walk through this passage, I, I hope you've you found that. You've seen that. I mean, in verse 1, times are bleak. In verses 2 through 6, God promises to send his Messiah, his ruler, to rescue and to rule over his people. In verses 7 through 9, we see that their fortunes would be so changed under this Messiah that they would testify to other nations that they might be rescued. And with God 
promising to cut off all their enemies who oppose them. And yet, there's still more ruin that God needs to rescue his people from. But what could that possibly be? All enemies, including Assyria, will be cut off. What other threats might plunge the people into ruin? That's a good question. You know, my guess is that we think of our greatest enemies, things that could bring us destruction, as being outside of us, external enemies. But you know, often the most pervasive and poisonous enemies aren't outside of us, but internal. But God promises to rescue us from that ruin as well, so that he might have for himself a pure people. I mean, notice how, how verse 9 ends with this promise that your enemies shall be cut off. And then look at how God takes the initiative in verses 10 through 14 to do this cutting off. And, and just notice these enemies. In verse 10, in that day, declares the Lord, the day when the Messiah rules, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Verse 11, I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. Verse 13, I will cut off your carved images and your pillars among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. Verse 14, the, the same idea, I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. God was telling his people, yes, there are armies swarming on the outside, enemy nations threatening you from out there, but that's not the main problem. Inside, you have set up all kinds of idols competing with simple trust in me. You've trusted in your military might and your fortresses, but I will cut them down. You've resorted to witchcraft and fortune tellers instead of seeking counsel from me, but I will cut them off. You've bowed down to carved images instead of to the living God, but I will root them out. There could only be one ruler, one king, and he would not share his glory. Amen. His people were to be wholly committed to him and to live holy lives. Anything else? would bring them ruin. But God was out to rescue, to bring total and complete deliverance in his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope you see God's jealous zeal for his name and his fierce love for you here. He sent his son not just to rescue you from a bad day or a bad experience, from a bad circumstance, or even in Micah's day from a besieging army. He came to rescue you from all your enemies, including a bad you. Amen. He came to cut off your besetting sins of trusting in people more than in God to give you counsel. Yeah. Of trusting in your own strength and wit and intellect and income instead of in God to get you through life. Mm. He sent his son, the Messiah, to be the only one in whom you put your complete and total dependence upon. Yeah. And to cut off any competitors. Saints, do you believe that that work has been accomplished? That Jesus has come to cut off 
to kill, to put to death your sins that, might, that they might not rule over you anymore? Then why do we keep living as if we're still in bondage to them? Jesus has rescued us from sin's penalty. And Jesus has rescued us from sin's power. And saints, one day this king is coming back to rescue us fully and finally from sin's very presence. Until then, we must trust in him alone as our only hope. Where are you tempted to, to turn to? In the midst of bleak and, and dark times. Do you, like the people of Judah, look at the strength of the enemies outside? Or maybe at the persistence and the power of the enemies inside of you that's got a hold on you? Do you look to the weakness of your leaders to help you in comparison to the strength of the enemies around you? Well, God has a different direction he wants to point us to, to his king, to his ruler, Jesus Christ. That he has raised up to root out all our enemies and to rescue us from all our sin. Look to him today in faith. Live for him today in hope and trust in him today to help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that puts steel in our spines, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word that meets us in our lowliness and lifts up our heads to behold King Jesus, reigning victorious over sin, over Satan, over this wicked world, over us. Give us hope in him. Let us live for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.